Have you noticed how human relationships are complicated and messy? And how because of them, we often avoid conversations that are going to be divisive, make people uncomfortable, start an argument, or even ruin a friendship. And as someone who loves harmony, I get that. But I've also had to ask myself the risks of not doing that, not engaging with others. Because see, when I look at others from my side, I can so easily make relational moral judgments where I'm on the side of good and the opposing side is evil. I can just listen to those who conform to what I already think, and that narrows the scope of those who I relate to. So that as my views get more sharply formed, I actually can grow more distant from others, and my ability to engage with them shrinks. So I want to talk with you today about something I am challenged about in the messiness of human relationships. And that is, what does it look like to have grace-filled conversations with one another? And I believe the best place to start with that is to start with Jesus and look at how he did that. How he treated other people as more than just representatives of a political party or a position and how that changed both the relationship and that other person. Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers come from opposite ends of the political spectrum, and yet they've written about what they're learning about when they have gracious disagreements. In a book they've titled, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, A Guide to Grace-Filled Political Conversations. And they point out that Jesus extends grace and he does this by listening, telling stories, and asking questions. And what's even more striking about what he did is how he approached people, how he showed respect and empathy, regardless of their ethnicity, their gender, their socioeconomic status, or their beliefs. You know, we forget how radical it was for Jesus to sit down with someone from a different culture in his time, even as we think about how radical that is to do in our day. But his radical acceptance is something that we need today. So let's look at how Jesus talks with a woman who he meets at a well in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. Here's how the story begins. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. And so what does he do? It says he leaves Judea in the south of Israel or Palestine and he goes once more back to Galilee, where he came from. Now, he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through Samaria. Stop and think about that with me. See, Samaria was right between North and South Israel. And most Jews would go around it when they traveled, either North or South. But Jesus had to go through Samaria because he cared about Samaritans. I was reminded about his intentionality when I thought back 25 years ago to a Promise Keepers event at Soldier Field in Chicago when I stood arm in arm with an African-American brother at this mass gathering where we were challenged to be serious about racial reconciliation. A friend of mine last week who's white and has an adopted son who's African-American called me up and said, you know, Jim, I just wonder what would have happened if we had been more intentional about those promises. And he made me stop and think about Jesus's words that he had to go to places like Samaria because he cared about Samaritans. 
So what happens? Well, he comes to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. This was a sacred space. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well, and it's about noon. Now just stop for a moment and think about what's going to come next. How Jesus is asking rather than attacking. Here he is, he's tired, and he talks, but his words are invitational, they're not oppositional. And it's an invitation to a community of people, people who are known by their love and how they care for one another, whose bond as brothers and sisters in him is far deeper than any other point of connection or affiliation. And notice how he will preach, not preach to her with answers, but how he creates space where there's freedom for to ask questions. So when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? Now his disciples had gone into town to buy food. So there he is all alone. Here he is a first century Jewish rabbi in Samaria. Now in his culture, there was a strict caste system so that for a Jewish rabbi to even acknowledge a peasant woman, to treat her with dignity or respect was not seen or heard in those days. He not only talks to her, but he asks her for help. He says, may I have a drink of water? And so the Samaritan woman says to him, you're a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. She must have seen how he was dressed. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And why was that? Well, it's really about, about culture and about ethnicity. See, Jews believed that they were pure-blooded descendants of Abraham, the father of their nation, whereas they saw Samaritans who had intermarried with non-Jews or Gentiles as being different and therefore inferior. And so in the eyes of Jews, they were strangers, and Samaria was a strange land. And yet, what do we see Jesus? We see him moving closer. He refuses to demonize this woman because he has a purpose, which is to demonstrate love toward her. He's not just there to do good to those who think like him or believe like him because his identity was not defined by a political conflict, even though there was heavy conflict, conflict between Jews and, Gen and Samaritans. No, his ultimate allegiance is to God. And so he looks at her as a person who was made in God's image and he seeks her out and moves toward her with love. And so he answers her in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Do you notice how Jesus is completely serious about what he's offering this woman who has been looking for love in all the wrong places? We'll see in just a moment. But he does it in a playful way to pique her interest. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus listens rather than lectures. What can you and I learn from his approach? I like what Amy E. Black says in Honoring God in Red or Blue, Approaching Politics with Humility, Grace, and Reason. She says that it's when we lose humility and we stop listening that problems happen in these kinds of conversations. She says, we can have passionate disagreements. I'd be worried if we were lukewarm about issues that matter. 
But in our passionate views, we still need to show respect for those who disagree with us because they are image bearers of God too. And so we must be humble enough to learn from them. So Jesus answers her in verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. We don't hear an exclusive gospel here for only certain people. Jesus responds to her concerns and her challenges with a hopeful way forward, not an us and them inside and out. So I ask you, do we believe that the good news we have can respond to the concerns and challenges that humanity faces today, that our faith has something to say to the world? The woman says to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And listen to what Jesus does next. He gets personal. Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. See, Jesus probes rather than pronounces here. Think about what he could have said at this point when she confessed. Jesus knew all about her past. He knew about her current life. And yet he is compassionate while still being honest. Why does he probe to learn more about her story rather than pronounce that she's a sinner? I wonder if it has something to do with what evangelist Ravi Zacharias said before he passed away. He said that his mother used to always say this, once you cut off a person's nose, there's no point in giving them a rose to smell. See, Ravi Zacharias observed that in the church, we've done a lot of nose cutting and that it's due in part because of the stand that we take on issues. He said this, it's not that the issues weren't important, but I think they would never solve the heart of the problem. See, we've made everything a moral issue and forgotten that the salvation message is what morality alone cannot solve. And so his challenge reminds us that people are looking at us they're looking at us honestly based on our actions. If we're unkind, intolerant, hateful, uncaring, they say, why should we listen to your message or what you have? I love what Jesus says next. He says to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, is that you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said just now is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain. She's looking over here. He says, but you Jews claim that, that, that the place where we're to worship is Jerusalem. I want you to see here where the off-ramp could have been to this conversation, how self-righteousness and anger could have escalated and the conversation could have just shut down and led to alienation or personal attack. See, rather than get into an anger-fed argument we, and seeing this woman starting to lose confidence that she has something meaningful to say, we see her moving toward Jesus, listening. Woman, he said, believe me, a time is coming when you, he includes her, will worship neither the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem, he says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Salvation came through Jesus, the Messiah. And then he says this, yet a time is coming 
and I love this, has now come when the worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers who the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and truth. We don't hear an exclusive gospel here. This woman had been marginalized. She'd been sidelined, silenced, afraid to speak up, and she could have been quiet. But instead, she takes a step back because Jesus had created a safe space for her to share about her concerns about current events, about policies in her land without being shamed or slammed. She didn't even have to be an expert enough to discuss these issues. We see Jesus continuing to answer her questions rather than demanding that she listen to him. He might be right, but he's undemanding. The woman says, I know that Messiah called the Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus does what he only does a few times in the Gospels. He declares, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. See, Jesus leads every conversation with God's truth. Even while he exposes this woman's darker side and confronts her dishonesty, he shows that you and I can do the same. We don't have to accept the unacceptable in order to maintain our grace. See, grace simply means that all people are valuable. It doesn't mean that all opinions are valid. We don't have to necessarily tone down our distinctives or water down our beliefs or practices in response to the perceptions of others. See, we can speak up, even in a culture that might say, you're irrelevant or you're extreme. When we walk the way Jesus walked, we can express our beliefs in a way that's loving without giving up what makes it our belief. Just then his disciples returned and they were surprised. What did they find? They find him talking to a woman, but none of them ask him, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? And then what does the woman do? It says that she leaves her water jar. She's found something better. She heads back into town and she goes to the people there and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and they made their way toward him. Talk about walls coming down. Talk about a grace-filled conversation leading to reconciliation. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, what did they do? They urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. Because of his words, many more became believers. And they said to the woman this, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world of all people. So what is Jesus asking us to do? He wants us to begin by examining our own narratives that we would listen with critical ears and, and eyes. And as we listen to, say, the news or social media, that we would say, does this conform to what I know or to my story in Jesus? Or is that a different one? He challenges us to look at our values, our spirituality, and apply the teachings of Jesus in the way that we live in community with other people. To ask ourselves questions that are needed in our day. Like, what serves the common good? We might have different approaches, the how, but we might agree on the what. How do we responsibly take 
the unchanging Word of God and Gospel and apply it to our ever-changing world in a way where we love our neighbor, we do justice, and we act as someone who belongs to Him, all the while demonstrating Christ-like character and believing that Christian virtue is needed in our society today. And then when we've done that internal kind of taking stock, we also look at our relationships and how we talk with others. We ask ourselves, am I engaging people with love? Can I see, can they see Jesus in me and what I'm saying and doing? Am I being the hands and feet of Jesus when I talk with them, say about politics? If I have a political conversation, can I ask myself afterwards, what went well, what didn't, and what role did I play in it? And so I ask you, what would it mean if you and I learned about how to talk to people on the other side with grace? Listen to what artist Erwin McManus says. We each have a different art form, a different context within which to live our most creative life. And the more you paint your life through actions motivated by love, the more you will reflect the work that God has for you. Jesus said that love is the driving force of everything beautiful. So look at the people around you because everyone's swinging their brush and you too are throwing paint on the people who are in relational reach of you. So you can look at the person you really are by how it's affecting the people who respect and love you. Look at the canvas of their lives, he says. Are you bringing greater hope and joy into their lives? Are you bringing meaning and intention? And finally, are you creating a future for those who follow in your wake?